Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the winds drive away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for getting us here today uh, without incident. Uh, it's a busy weekend. It's the uh, 4th of July weekend this week, and uh, uh, the traffic is getting full already. And uh, we just thank you that those that are here could make it without any trouble. And I ask that you bless each one of them. And uh, I, I pray that today's message, maybe above all others that we've done so far, will uh, reveal something to them that maybe they just never com contemplated before. What a word. What a glorious word you've given. What a story to be found in today's uh, 11 verses. Lord, we thank you for your open hand of grace and all you've done for us. We want to give you praise and glory and honor above all, above all for the work of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Um, I'm not going to do too much before the sermon today because uh, obviously it's going to get noisy if the boats start running, even if it's north of here. And uh, so I'll tell you real quickly that the, uh, the work on the building actually kind of did start this week. The county, after almost three weeks, finally moved the water meter. It rained all week, so they couldn't pour any concrete. But yesterday they actually started putting down the rebar for the concrete in there. If that is inspected and uh, looks good on Monday or Tuesday, maybe they'll pour the slab and then we'll really get to work. So uh, that's all I have to say about the uh, building, which has been almost four months delayed. Um, baptism, if you've never been baptized, uh, there's only one person I haven't presented this to today that I know of. But uh, uh, if you want to be baptized scripturally, uh, which is following the Lord in his death and resurrection, it's a picture of that going under the water and coming out to the glory of God. Uh, that's something I do anytime, day or night, uh, and uh, I will do it any Sunday after the service as well. So uh, let me know if that's something you want to do. And today will be our 81st Genesis sermon. It's something that uh, is very wonderful in all that it details, and it's very exciting. Um, one thing, if anybody else comes, please let them know this. I got some cutter over here because there may be some mosquitoes. We've had an east wind, and this is the last stop on the way to uh, Texas, and so they do like to stay on Siesta Key. Um, so uh, if you start getting bit, there's cutter here. Ethan uh, brought a bunch of water, so please uh, drink that, and he's got some donuts. Please eat them, and if somebody comes, just hand them over to them too so that uh, it's all gone because he doesn't want to take any of that home. But uh, anyway, today's uh, sermon would be Genesis 32, verses 22 through 32. It's 11 verses, and it's called uh, He Struggles with God and Men. Uh, just wonderful stuff that is found in these uh, verses. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read one more quick psalm. This will be Psalm number 2. And uh, I hope that you'll listen to the words of Psalm number 2 and understand the importance of them. Uh, and at the end, we're going to hear about kissing the sun. That is obviously uh, uh, telling us about the work of the Lord and that we should bow to him and reverence him. Uh, but anyway, Psalm 2 is one of those beautiful psalms that should be almost committed to memory. If you have uh, the ability to memorize uh, Bible passages, this is one of them that would be good to do so. Psalm number two, why do the nations rage? And why do the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heavens shall laugh, in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall hold them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust 
in him. We will do this day in history. It's something that I like to do, and I'm going to keep it short, just a couple points today. But uh, uh, July 7th is uh, t the date today, and something happened on July 7th of 1550, which is so astonishing and so wonderful to the people of the world that I, I would uh, be remiss in not uh, telling you about it. Chocolate was introduced on this day. So um, uh, wonderful stuff. And uh, then in 1668, a guy named Isaac Newton received his M.A. from uh, Trinity College in Cambridge. Uh, if you uh, know the name Trinity, obviously it's speaking of the triune God. Many of the uh, universities, both in England and in America, were started as theological seminaries. You were required to know Hebrew and Greek. And um, uh, most of those great seminaries have now turned completely secular. Uh, but uh, Isaac Newton did come through this uh, type of training. I believe he eventually took the chair at Cambridge, and um, he uh, was and still is to this day considered the greatest scientist in all of human history. And uh, every scientist that uh, is asked will name him. He, he certainly was the greatest scientific mind ever to live. And yet, as I've said in the past, he wrote more on theology than he did on science, a great deal more. And uh, he focused especially in the prophetic books like Daniel, and uh, he spent a great deal of time in Daniel chapter 9. But uh, he did believe that the Bible revealed everything that we need to know both for our life and for what is coming in the future. Uh, he was just a marvelous mastermind of uh, science and of theology. Anyway, uh, in 1846 on this day, the U.S. annexation of California was proclaimed at Monterey after the surrender of a Mexican garrison. And uh, if you uh, know California, that's over on the left coast of America. It uh, is the one of the greatest powerhouses in all of the world. Its economy is equal to or greater than all but maybe five nations on Earth. And that's just the state of California by itself. Um, however, they are fiscally and morally irresponsible, and they are drumming themselves into a pit which uh, will... If America lasts, America will have to bail out California because of their ineptitude out there. And that doesn't mean all the people. It means the people that are running the show who are very liberal, very um, uh, ungodly folks. Uh, and we're going to face that in the uh, time to come. But uh, uh, that was uh, 1846. And then in 1862, the first railroad post office was tested on the Hannibal and St. Joseph Railroad in Missouri. And uh, if you've seen pictures of this or maybe... Uh, uh, read about it, they had post offices which were mobile. They were actually railroad cars. And uh, I think the idea was, and I don't know this, but I'm just guessing that the reason why they would do something like this is because it wouldn't be you know, feasible to have a post office at some of these little podunk towns that just popped up out of the middle of nowhere. And so instead, they probably had a mail uh, collection center, like a, a, you know, a mailbox on the side of the road today, and then these post offices would unload those things and they would uh, do the postal work and maybe they'd stop for an hour while people were getting on and off and help people with their postage. I don't know, but I thought that was kind of an in innovative thing that they uh, thought up was having a, a traveling post office. Uh, 1885, a guy named G. Moores Peters patented the cartridge loading machine. Machine, And uh, what that means is he uh, made um, uh, uh, cartridges for all different calibers of weapons, shotgun shells and 45s and whatever. He made them for machine guns. But this is uh, the guy that came up with that. And uh, you, then, you, of course, you have all kinds of other weapons-type innovations like the machine gun. And uh, that was, uh, I, I think, a guy named Maxime is the guy that invented it. He was in England, and uh, he was an inventor, and he wasn't really successful at uh, anything at the time. And somebody says, well, why don't you think of a way of... Uh, you know, making people it easier to kill other people because the Europeans seemed to love to do that. And so he went home and he invented the machine gun. And uh, something about the machine gun I saw this week is that um, the tactics did not develop to meet the new weaponry. And uh, so people would go into battle the way they did in old times, facing each other, and they'd say, charge. And in one day, in one day in uh, France during World War One, I, I think he said 57 thousand British troops were killed in one day because they, they didn't understand that these guns really have the ability to wipe out just anything in their, their path. So uh, uh, kind of a sad thing, but uh, anyway, cartridge uh, loading machine goes very quickly and uh, now we can uh, kill each other at uh, exponential rates. 
1898, the United States, another annexation, they annexed Hawaii. So we uh, have California, we have Hawaii. Hawaii is also kind of a liberal state, but uh, it's beautiful. It's a, a, a nice state to visit. I have a brother that lived there several years, and I visited him a couple times. But uh, uh, that was 1898 on this day. And uh, then here, 7 July 1930, construction began on the Boulder Dam. Now, does anybody know the new name of the Boulder Dam? Hoover, that's right. So uh, big, big project, really wonderful stuff. Uh, it was uh, partly to get uh, work back into the states because there was so much poverty and so many people unemployed, and also to build an infrastructure so that as people were moving west, they would have power, they'd have uh, the ability to expand and to farm and do all the things that they couldn't do before that was constructed. And it also, the Colorado River was subject to uh, floodings, and so uh, it took care of that problem. And uh, unfortunately, if this dam ever goes, then there's going to be a real problem. But uh, that was 1930 on this day. Then in 1937, Japanese forces invaded China. And uh, we all know that they were finally pushed out of China in um, 1945, at the end of World War II. But during those eight years, the Japanese were merciless on the Chinese. Um, they, uh, they raped, they killed they squandered all of the, uh, the uh, work and productivity of the Chinese. They took it and sent it back to Japan and used it for the war effort. And um, one of the things the Japanese did is uh, they were very big into chemical weapons research. And so they would just pick a town, a little town in the middle of nowhere, and they'd bomb it with chemical weapons. And uh, then they'd go in and they'd actually cut the people open as they were dying without any anesthesia or anything, and they'd check and see how their internal organs were affected. So this is the depravity of man, and this is the state that we're in as human beings. I mean, it's an indictment on Japan, but it's an indictment on all of us uh, in one way or another because we're all human beings. And uh, when you believe that you have God sitting on the uh, chrysanthemum throne over in Tokyo, then that kind of stuff is acceptable because everybody else is less than you. And this is the same thing as the concept of evolution. If we evolved, then we're all just bugs and it doesn't really matter anyway. It's a survival of the fittest and uh, uh, what we do in combat or what we do morally or ethically doesn't matter. And uh, this is what's being pushed on us here in America nowadays is this same concept. And uh, it will only lead to brutality. It'll only lead to loss and sadness in the end. Um, 1946 on this day, uh, very biblical point here. Mother Frances Xavier Cabrini was canonized as the first American saint. And if you know your Bible this much from New Testament theology, you know that a saint is a person that called in Jesus Christ, not somebody that somebody in a uh, chair up in uh, Rome decides is a saint. It has nothing to do with that. All that does is it takes our eyes off of Jesus, which is a violation of the Bible, and it puts them on individuals, whether it's Mary or whether it's a saint or this or that. Anything to get your eyes off of Jesus has become the policy of Roman Catholicism. And I got a lot of Roman Catholics that I love. I mean, they love Jesus, but I'm talking about the policies of the church itself. And we have to make a distinguishment of what is right and what is wrong. Is this book the authoritative uh, message from God, or is it somebody, as I said, sitting in Rome? Does he determine what brings about salvation? Does he determine what brings about our relationship with God? Because they do believe that. They believe that he is the man. He is the one that sits in the seat of Christ at this point in time. Either it's true or it's not. And each of you has to come to that and evaluate it on your own. I say no. I say that this is the word of God and what they teach is heresy. But that's up for you to think about. Uh, finally, on this day in uh, 1981, President Reagan announced the nomination of Judge Sandra Day O'Connor to become the first female justice of the United States of America. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with uh, a, a female being appointed or a black or a Hispanic or a, a Chinese or whatever. But it has now kind of become the standard that if you appoint a white male that you're somehow racist or bigoted or homophobic or something. And uh, so the standard is to pick anybody but that. And uh, uh, that's, I'm not making a comment about Sandra Day O'Connor. I, I didn't really like a lot of her rulings, but, uh, you know, Reagan, I think, did the right thing in uh, nominating her. But uh, we just need to have perspective in our lives is that we should nominate people based on their qualifications and not on the color of their skin or the roundness of their eyes or any other uh, set standard that they decide we need to do this because. So uh, anyway, that's this day in history. Keep it short. And uh, uh, we'll go ahead and get into the sermon. I'm going to read you the sermon text first, 
And uh, this is Genesis 32, verses 22 through 32. Uh, let's see here. Genesis 32, verse 22. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and he sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not, unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. Then he said, Why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip of the socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Now I want you to know that normally when I do a sermon, I uh, type the sermon and then I go back and I type the introduction. And I do this for several reasons. I uh, want to make it longer or shorter so it fits properly. Um, I want it to maybe reflect about what we're going to talk about or how it may apply to us or you know, what may be hinted at in the coming verses. Last week, I talked a little bit about dispensationalism, and lo and behold, that was part of the sermon. So uh, uh, that's why I do the introduction last. However, um, when I typed this particular sermon's introduction, I typed it first. And I didn't care at that time how long the introduction was, nor how long the sermon would be. Uh, I've waited personally 80 sermons to get to where we are today. And before typing this sermon, I must have said out loud, thank you, Lord, at least 20 times. I was so excited to be able to sit down and to say, I'm now going to evaluate and type up an analysis of this particular passage. I take sermon typing very, very seriously. And I want you to know that it is the single most important part of my week. You know that if you call me on Monday, I probably won't answer. I may but uh, I don't like answering the phone. I don't like doing anything, even into Tuesday. Sometimes it takes two full days to type a sermon. And it is something that I, I absolutely take seriously. Not the giving of the sermon. You might think that that would be the most important part of my week, but it's not. And the reason why is because when I'm typing it, I am now getting ready to present an evaluation of God's word. And I was thinking to myself as I was typing this, oh God, how can you allow me to present this to other people. I actually cried before I started typing today's sermon. Today's passage, regardless of how the rest of the sermon actually comes out, is one of the most important passages in the entire Bible to me. Though we have seen Jacob grow into a family, today this passage here is the true establishment of Israel. It's a story which will continue on in joy, in kingship, in beauty, in amazement, in glory for a people who strive with God. It will also continue on in disobedience, in punishment, in woe, in wrath, and even in consuming anger and unbelievable carnage for a people who strive with God in a different way. When we hear the name Israel, we are hearing a name which is closer than any other to the mystery of the apple of God's eye and the joy of his heart and the focus of his eternal covenant. Our text verse for today comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. Shema Yisrael, Yehovah Eloheinu, Yehovah Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. When asked what was the greatest of all of the commandments, Jesus turned to this verse and he repeated it to the people of Israel. This is your command. And this is your warning. You can strive with God and you can be in his favor, or you can strive with God and you can be the object of his wrath. The meaning Israel is a double entendre. It means he strives with God, either on his behalf or against his will. But either way, Israel strives with God. This people who are beloved of God and with whom 
continues the everlasting covenant promises are the people who ushered in the Messiah and to whom this Messiah will return to again someday when they call on him as Lord. This people, Israel, is the focus of his attention. And we will see the renaming of Jacob today to reflect the coming struggles with God. And so may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is alone in a struggle with God. This is verse 22. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants and their 11 sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. The context here demands that we remember first who these people picture. There are two wives named Rachel and Leah. Rachel pictures the New Testament grace and Leah pictures the law. The two female servants or his concubines named Bilhah and Zilpah picture the two exiles of the people of Israel. The first was in 583 BC. Uh, that was the Babylonian exile, which lasted for 70 years. And then the next one was in A.D. 70, and that was the Roman exile, which ended on 14 May of 1948. The children of Israel picture the people of Israel as a collective whole. Jacob is taking all of them, and he is preparing them in the night for what lay ahead by having them cross over the Jabbok. The name Jabbok means pouring out. Jabbok is named here because it shows what will come to this group of people. And it will be just like the name Israel. It'll be a double entendre. There will be a pouring out of God's favor upon them. Love, grace, mercy, and the like. Even the Holy Spirit begins to be poured out on Israel in Acts chapter 2. But there will also be a pouring out of God's wrath upon them. In the years ahead for this group of people, God will deal with them in a singular and a unique way. It will be a relationship distinct from all other people on earth, and it will show us the, and all of the people of the world God's immense love and his covenant-keeping faithfulness. Verse 23, he took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. The Hebrew here says that he caused them to pass over. In other words, he is sending his family over the Jabbok while he remains on this side alone. He's preparing himself for what may be the greatest struggle of his life, and he will do it in a way which will allow him to seek God's face uninterrupted. And I can tell you, this is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus would go after one of his great uh, dealings with people off into a mountain alone and pray. Or if you remember on the night before he went to uh, the cross, he was in Gethsemane, and he brought along only three people with him. And when he got to the garden, he actually went further without them. He was alone in the presence of God or in the face of God, seeking God. And this is something that every one of us needs to learn from this passage, is that there is a time when we need to send everybody else over the river and we need to spend time alone in God's presence, just as Jesus did and just as Jacob did. And I've always said to myself, because I've been to every state in this country, I've driven through every state in this country, that the most barren places out here are Arizona and New Mexico and even a part of Oregon is just absolute barren desert. And I've always said to myself that if I need to get away, I need to absolutely seek God's face. I just buy an airplane ticket and go out there, get a rental car and drive to the farthest place away from anything I could and just lay there and talk to God. And some of us at some point in our life may be facing cancer. And maybe that's a time that we get other people to pray just as Jesus asked the three disciples in the garden to stay and pray and watch. And while they're doing that, we get alone with God. Or maybe we're thinking about getting a divorce. Or maybe we're thinking about uh, uh, the financial ruin that is hemming us in. Whatever it is, there is a time to seek God's face. And we're seeing that right here. The most important history, in, uh, most important moment in redemptive history which is happening right in this verse. This man wants to be alone with God, and so he sends his family over the Jabbok. We should think about that as well. Verse 24, Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Alone on the north bank of the river, a man is suddenly introduced into the story without an introduction of the man. Jacob is going to be given a new experience, one which will prefigure the nation which comes from him, Israel. It'll also show us about our relationship with God as well. In order to bring about such an event in any of us, God will begin with our senses. If you think of the Apostle Paul, 
He was ready for his meeting with God and God came to him through his senses. He was blinded. And this is how God will deal with us. He comes to us in this way because we're physical beings and so he will use our physical experiences. But we're also rational beings and so he will come to us through our memories and through our reason and through our logic if we're willing to use those things. And finally, we're spiritual beings. And so he will come to us by communing with us on a spiritual level. And that's not going to happen unless you're alone with God. And Paul was alone with God for some time before he was healed of his blindness. And this is how God deals with us on these different levels. This is how he meets with Jacob right here. This is how he deals with Israel. And this is how he deals with us. So who is this man? There can only be one answer. We will see later that this is God. If God be a man, then the man is Jesus Christ. Regardless of how you perceive him at this moment in human history, it is nonetheless Jesus. He walked with Adam in the Garden of Eden. He closed the door of Noah's Ark. He walked up to Abraham with two angels, and he sat and had a meal with him. All of these were given the title of Jehovah, specifically using the title of God, Jehovah, in those accounts. If Jehovah be a man, Jehovah is Jesus. He appeared inside Lot's house before the destruction of Sodom, and he took him by the hand as it began. Time and time again, he has appeared visibly and physically to his chosen line, entering into his own history and shaping it so that it will lead directly to him. Now, I want you to know, I am unashamedly of the opinion that the term pre-incarnate Christ is a logical contradiction. Either this is Jesus Christ or it isn't. And so as I speak to you right now, I assert to you the very unusual belief because I don't know anybody on earth that holds this except me and maybe some people that have been in my Bible classes that this is the eternal risen Christ who had already gone to Calvary's cross and he ascended to become the master of time and space. Now how? How he did this, how he can appear in his own genealogy is a mystery that I can't answer but it is a truth that I cannot deny. Now he meets with Jacob. Jacob has been a man so far in his life of self-determination. He bartered with his brother, a birthright for a bowl of soup, and he conspired with his mother, Rebecca in order to obtain a blessing from his father. He set up a pillar and he made a vow to God before leaving uh, Canaan. He did that in the area of Bethel. And then he obtained two wives and he got a family and wealth all from his family, his father-in-law Laban, if you remember that. And now he's on his return and he's taken wise measures to ensure that his brother is going to receive him favorably. If you remember, he went through this great prayer of faith and then he started sending gifts to his brother, which we looked at in the past few sermons. All the time God has been with him, but he has not been fully dependent on him in the truest sense. In wrestling with this man, Jacob will learn what it means to be reliant and dependent on God in a new way. Again, and we don't want to forget this fact, this struggle which Jacob is in is reflected in Israel's struggle with God, and it also reflects our own struggles with God as well. If we lose sight of this, then this story here becomes a mere curiosity in a book of much curiosity. This cosmic wrestling match which occurred just a little bit less than 4,000 years ago was remembered by the prophet Hosea when he reminded Israel of their responsibilities to God. Here's what it says. The Lord also brings a charge against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. According to his deeds, he will recompense him. He took his brother by the heel in the womb and in his strength, he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel and there he spoke to us. That is, the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Observe mercy and justice and wait on your God continually. The struggle at night is a struggle all of us need to remember and reflect on all of our days as we live in God's presence. Verse 25. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, let's stop in the middle of the verse here, this match continues throughout the night and it's a very well-balanced match. Neither is getting the upper hand on the other. Now, one would wonder why, if this is the Lord, why can't he defeat Jacob? Well, Jacob was a man of strength even before his birth. In the womb, in Genesis 25, verse 22, we saw that he struggled with his brother. And he's been struggling with man and with nature ever since. His life has 
been one of meeting and defeating adversaries continuously. Whether they be an antagonistic brother or an ornery uh, father-in-law or even a large rock over a mouth of a well, he was exceptionally capable as a physical being. Verse 25 continues, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. The man, Jehovah, the Lord, seeing that he cannot prevail over Jacob, uses his knowledge of the human form which he created to complete Jacob's spiritual development through a physical reality. He touches him at the right in the socket of the hip in order to reduce him to a, state, a state of complete dependence upon him. Now, interestingly, and something that would be a huge mistake to miss is a connection between the name of the river Jabbok, which in Hebrew is Yabak, and the act of wrestling, which has been mentioned twice. The word for wrestle in Hebrew is Abak. The placement of the match and the match itself are being tied together. The term Abak is one which indicates dust. The idea is that when one wrestles, dust is raised into the air. Everything is being tied together in this struggle to show us the work of Christ, which results from the struggles of Israel from whom Christ came. There's a struggle in each person, which is reflected right here as well. There is the dust which reflects man. Man was raised from the dust of the earth to become a living being, but man fell. He is still of the dust, but he's lacking any true life. Jacob's struggles are man's struggles. The struggle of Jacob and Esau in Rebekah's womb is the struggle of God and man. Jesus came after Adam, but he prevailed over Adam. This was pictured by Jacob coming out of the womb after Esau, but grabbing him by his heel as he came. If you remember that story, he's the God-man coming out after the man formed of the dust, and that's all pictured by that particular passage. Jacob has the birthright, and Jacob has the blessing. Jacob has the promise, and Jacob has the vision. Jacob has the wives, which picture the law and grace. He has the sons, which each tell a story of the coming Christ. He has the flock, which pictures the church. We've seen all of this and so much more, and all of it is looking forward to the coming Christ. All of it. And now Jacob, a man of the dust, is struggling with God by a river called the pouring out. Suddenly his hip is wrenched. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 5, we read these words describing Solomon. It says there, his legs are pillars of marble set on bases of fine gold. The very pillar of man's strength, which are his legs, have now lost their ability to hold Jacob up. He can no longer rely on them as he once did. And he can no longer prevail in the struggle as a wrestler relying on his own strength. With a single touch by the man of mystery, he is utterly dependent on him to stand. This one, this Lord, has become his only hope. Are any of you seeing Israel in this? Do you know your Bible? The struggle is going on even to this day. Are any of you seeing your own self in this? There is an utter dependence by this man, by Jacob, on this man, by the man of the dust. The life of Jacob, the moment in this cosmic wrestling match, the span of the people of Israel and the span of your own existence turns on this one definitive act of God, a touch in your own mortal weak spot. There is a time when you can no longer rely on yourselves, but you must rely wholly on another. And until that time comes, we remain of the dust. But when it is realized, the pouring out represented by the Jabbok River changes us from an earthly existence to a heavenly promise. The name of the river came from this match between these two men. In the same way, the pouring forth is a result of man's struggle with God and it will come in no other way. This pouring forth began in Israel after the resurrection, as I said in Acts chapter two, and it happens in many individuals every single day as their weakness is traded for his strength. The Geneva Bible says, for God assails his with the one hand and upholds them with the other. Our second thought today, the day breaks. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. Jacob wrestled with the man who created him and he overpowered him. Now the man pleads for his leave. 
The day is breaking, let me go. Now this is no doubt a picture of the true Israel, who is Jesus Christ, who went to the grave, but received his leave from that grave as the day broke. The man of dust, which is his body, as it lay in the grave, was to depart that place. The symbolism of the battle in the dust between Jacob and God is beautifully realized in the resurrection. The spirit returned into the body of the man. And unless the spirit returns into you, oh you man of dust, you will remain in the eternal grave. It is seen in Jesus as our Lord. It is seen in each one of us as we acknowledge that fact. And it will be seen in the people of Israel someday when they call on him as a nation. All of this is tied up in this mysterious match right here. In Zechariah chapter 12, we see the final pouring out on Israel, which was pictured by the struggle between God and man. It's something which is future to us now. Here's what it says. And I will pour on the house of David and on the house of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. If you notice, this was the Lord speaking. The Lord is making this declaration and he goes from the first person to the third person in one sentence. He says, they will mourn for, they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Even in the Old Testament, it is clearly evident what God is doing in human history. A man is coming who will be God. It's right there for all of us to see if we're just willing to open our eyes and look. This pouring out, which is spoken about in Zechariah 12, hasn't happened yet, but it is coming and it will be just as it should be when this heavenly drama is seen in the people of Israel who have struggled with God for so very long. Verse 26 continues, but he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. It's completely evident here to Jacob that this is a divine being. He has no doubt about it. He knows this for a multitude of reasons. God promised to be with him and keep him when he saw it, had his vision back in Bethel. He saw God's camp just a few sermons ago called Mahanaim next to his camp there by the river. Even the conduct of the match itself has led him to know that this is a divine being. And so he asks for a blessing because he knows that this is a heavenly messenger. His grasp is going to remain firm until the blessing is received. In this moment, his disability has revealed the secret of a new power. The power of the weak who is totally reliant on God is that God simply will not resist the honest plea of his helpless child. If nothing else is to be taken away from this passage today, this is a key that you should never forget. A faithful petition for blessing when you are at your most helpless, at the moment when you are absolutely at the end of your rope, will result in the bestowal of the blessing. The plea has become a prayer of faith in the strength of God. And the strength of God is revealed in answering the prayer, the pouring out. This verse right here, this is Jacob's moment. His moment of salvation. He's become a man that is wholly dependent on God. And so he's reached out to him for his gift. And God has met Jacob in the form of a man. He's come to us in the same form. In fact, it's the form that we can cling to above all others. Jesus is the one to whom I'm so sorry. Tried eight days in a row to get rid of this from me, and I still can't. It's Jesus to whom we are fully dependent for our blessing. We have to remember from our sermon a couple weeks ago that it dealt solely with Jacob's prayer for deliverance from his brother Esau. And we have to remember that Esau pictures man made from the dust of the earth. This struggle is our struggle. This prayer is our prayer. The answer to the prayer is the wrestling match. Before we come to the Lord as our brother, we need to realize that we first met him as an enemy. Man's true opponent is not other men. It is God himself. And until we realize this, peace cannot be made with him. 
And I'm not just pulling this out of the theological wind either. God tells us this right in his word. He says in Romans chapter 5, For if we were enemies when we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Being saved implies you're being saved from something. And that is being God's enemy. And that is facing God's wrath. We are told this repeatedly in the Bible. We are at war with God. We are children of wrath by nature. We are his enemy because of the sin in our lives. And only after the battle can we sue for the peace. And this battle starts right from birth. David tells us it in the 51st Psalm. He says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Verse 27, so he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. By asking his name, it is an indication that he is granting the request. He already knows the name, but it establishes the basis for the blessing. This is no different than being asked to state your name in court. I assure you that if you are there, they already know your name. But the basis for the testimony is the stating of the name. Jacob gives his name. It's the only name that he's ever had. Yaakov, Jacob, heel grabber or deceiver. He's an usurper. His name has reflected his life, and now his life is going to take a new direction. Verse 28, he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. The man now tells Jacob something amazing. You have struggled with God and with men. The Lord above the ladder is the man who has wrestled in the dark. Jacob struggled with man throughout his life and he prevailed. He now has struggled with God and the same is true. The change in the name reflects the change in the character. The actual name of Israel is not easy to define. And so some people say it means Prince of God and some say God persists or God preserves and others say he struggles with God. Because struggling is tied in to the giving of the name, the last is correct. You have struggled with God and with men, and you have prevailed. A detailed evaluation of the name Israel by Abarim sounds almost blasphemous at first. I'm going to read it to you, and you're going to go, oh. but i got to tell you what, it does reveal what we see in history and what we see in our own salvation. And so I'm going to read you their conclusion. We cannot say with certainty what the name Israel is supposed to mean, although it seems to reflect a certain inability of the Almighty God. Namely, that not being able to defeat a man like Jacob. We can be sure that God doesn't lack physical strength to eradicate any human being. So we must conclude that the destruction of Jacob would go against the very nature of God. Perhaps the name Israel denotes God's continuous efforts to keep Jacob going, even though Jacob continues to fight against God. Right there. That's it. That's the evident reason for the whole scope and plan of salvation, as well as the continuation of both the people known as Israel and the continued salvation of sinners, such as you and me. It would go against the nature of God to destroy Jacob because Jesus comes through Jacob based on a promise which was given at the fall of man. It would go against the nature of God to destroy the people of Israel for the same reason. And also they've been brought under God's covenant protection. And it would go against God's nature to remove a believer's salvation, even after continuous failings in his presence, such as Charlie Garrett, who fails his Lord every single moment of every single day. Why? Because he has sealed us with his spirit. I said some sermons ago that Israel is more than a people. Israel is a concept of uniting and restoring God to the people of the world. The faithfulness of God is tied up in Israel. The plan of God is tied up in Israel. And the glory of God is tied up in Israel. When we say nothing is impossible for God, we say it from a human perspective. God cannot do what is logically impossible, such as make a triangle, which is a circle, or maybe make an odd number, which is even. God can't do what's morally wrong either. He cannot violate what makes himself God. He cannot be unjust. He cannot be unrighteous. And God cannot defeat himself 
when he's aligned with you. The struggle of Jacob and this man has revealed this. When you call on Jesus as Lord, God truly is once, forever, and completely going to be your Lord. Whether you struggle with him for him or whether you struggle with him against him. And as a testimony to all of this, all we need to do is look at the change in the names of Abraham and Sarah. Once God changed their names from Avram into Sarai, their old names are never, ever used again. But with Jacob, for the rest of the Bible, both names are used, Jacob and Israel, and they're used commonly, and they're used interchangeably, sometimes even in the same sentence. Jacob is the flesh and blood man who still walks in this fallen world. Israel is the hope and the promise of life in the Messiah. As Albert Barnes notes, both names have a spiritual significance for two different aspects of the child of God according to the Apostles' Paradox. If you don't know what the Apostles' Paradox is, it's found in Philippians chapter 2, and I'll read it to you. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to do for his good pleasure. He asks you to work out your own salvation, Jacob, but God is doing it for you, O Israel, you man of the dust, you heavenly being. Do you see the apostles' paradox? It's right here in the struggle of Jacob and this man. Our third thought today, the face of God. Verse 29, then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. Asking for a name is asking for an understanding of the individual. By asking for the name, Jacob is looking to understand the nature of the man who is God. But the man returns with a question which is in itself an answer. Why is it that you ask about my name? The answer is that no answer will be given. And the answer is the nature of the person which is reflected in the name should already be understood even if the name isn't known. In other words, you don't need my name. You already know who I am. The giving of a name implies ownership of a person or thing. We saw this with Abraham and Sarah when he changed their names. And the Lord has now changed Jacob's name. The ownership is understood in the act. Following the question, the blessing is given. God has blessed the man because he is pleased when a man dependent on him requests a blessing. Verse 30, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Peniel means face of God. And the explanation is given for the name. Kiraiti Elohim Panim El Panim, for I have seen God face to face. There is a place where man can see God and not die, which sounds contrary to the very words of scripture because the Lord told Moses in Exodus 33, verse 20, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. But when God united with humanity, he was no less God, but the humanity of Jesus Christ allows us to see what is otherwise not possible. The eternal Christ wrestled with Jacob in the dust and spoke with him face to face and Jacob lived. John did the same thing. He and all of the apostles, when he wrote these words to us, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. That life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the father and is manifested to us. He's even more explicit in the first chapter of his gospel when he wrote in the 14th uh, verse he said there and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory the glory of the only begotten of the father full of grace and truth verse 31 just as he crossed over Penuel the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip here again is another picture of the coming Christ what has happened is showing us what is later coming in us the sun is rising on Israel just as he crosses over Penuel. Now, Penuel means the same thing as Peniel, but they're spelled differently. 
They both mean face of God, but they aren't speaking about the same thing at all. In the previous verse, it says that he named the place Peniel, the location. This verse, Penuel, isn't speaking of the location. It is speaking about the relationship between him and the God-man that he just encountered. Jacob has crossed over the face of God. He is now like Abraham, a Hebrew who once crossed over. To completely understand this, you need to go back to Genesis chapter 14, where a term is used there for the very first time in the Bible. It's the term Hebrew, which means to cross over. It's connected to Abraham's great, 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 great grandfather, Eber. Jacob has now crossed over because of his interaction with the God-man. And in fulfillment of this for you and for me, we see right from Paul's hand in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for it is the God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. Remember, the light is rising over Jacob, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face, the penuel of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Remember the man of the dust, and we're earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power of God may be of us, of God, and not of us the spirit residing in the earthen vessel. The value is in the spiritual because the man is still the man of the dust and the light is shining over him because of the face of God, the face of Jesus Christ. Paul is tying this spiritual light of Christ into our salvation because of Jesus. Our weakness, his power. It is the same spiritual light that Jacob is prefiguring by the sun shining on him as he passed by the face of God, Jesus. In Malachi 4, on the very last page of the Old Testament, we read these words, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. Jacob had a new relationship with the Lord, and the Son of Righteousness arose upon him, the inclusion of this verse definitively ties the man that he wrestled with to the coming Redeemer. It is a surety for all who would later call on and revere his name. Anyone who does becomes a part of the commonwealth of the spiritual blessing of Israel. Jacob's healing, like ours, may not be so much physical as it is spiritual. In fact, our affliction may become part of our salvation. Remember Paul, his eyes? it actually became a part of his salvation. One commentator says it this way, in the greatest of these spiritual victories, which through faith any of God's people obtain, there is always something to humble them. Paul found this out as have so many since. Christ shines all the more gloriously through our weakness. Verse 32, therefore to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. The muscle that shrank is the tendon or the sinew. It's not the meaty part around it. This is obviously a tradition in Israel at the time of the law because Moses is recording it in Genesis, which is a part of the law known as the Torah. However, the prohibition is a tradition and it's not something that's later prescribed in the law. The fact that it is recorded here means that the intention was to pass the knowledge on, but there's nothing beyond this sentence to say anything more about it. Surprisingly, this is where the account and the chapter ends. It is a note of reverence for the power of God over the man who struggled with God. And it is a note of vindication that the man who was physically defeated in his fight still prevailed. Not in the sense that he defeated God, but in the sense that God could not defeat himself by destroying the man who continued to struggle with him. And there's nothing at all contradictory here. What God proclaims must always come about. What God has ordained is eternal and it is unchanging. Though Israel fight against God, God will keep Israel going. And though you continue to fight against God, if you are his, and there's a caveat there, if you are his, he will likewise keep you in his grasp. The strength of Jacob was reduced to weakness through this tendon, and so the people of God, in remembrance of this, removed the tendon from their meals. 
In a similar acknowledgement, the people of God now have their own remembrance. The power of God is revealed in the weakness of the human life, which is bound up in the body and in the blood of the Lord Jesus. And so in acknowledgement of his work, we participate in his spiritual strength through the taking of communion. The work of Christ is a marvelous mystery of God's interaction with his creatures. It reveals God's power, and yet it shows us that our uniting with him is a bond which he himself cannot break. He cannot do it. It is an eternal and an inviolable part of his very being. If you've never become a part of this eternal and sacrosanct relationship, I'd like you to give me just another minute to explain it to you and how you can be a part of it and how it's important to you. The fact is that we've been talking about Jacob struggling with God and we are all in a struggle with God, all of us, because we have something in us called sin. And God cannot look upon us with favor when we have sin in our lives. It is impossible. He would violate his own just and righteous nature to do so. But God is merciful and God is graceful and he's loving. And so it would violate his nature to not pursue those avenues towards us. But then there's a tension between them and they have to be reconciled in some way. And there's only one way that it could come about and that is through the life of Jesus Christ. He prevailed over the sin that we cannot prevail over. And now we can put our faith in what he did. He went to the grave in fulfillment of the law and he came out of the grave to prove that he is God and that he can make this bridge back. And so all he asks us to do is to put our faith in that act that he is Lord, that he can take away our sin, and he will grant us eternal life because of it. That's all he wants. And afterward, you're going to continue to struggle with God, O Jacob, and you're going to continue to be in his glorious presence for all eternity, O Israel, because this is the God who has redeemed you through the blood of his own son, Jesus Christ. I've got a closing verse to, for you today from Isaiah chapter 43. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Imagine that. The earthly man and the spiritual man united together, and God will never, never, never let us fail if we are his. What a wonderful promise. Next week, we're going to look at Genesis 33, verses 1 through 17. Guess what? Jacob finally meets Esau. He's going to be either killed by or reconciled to his brother, and we'll have to find out when we get there. That'll be our 82nd Genesis sermon. Before we take communion, which we talked about a little bit today, and before we have our poem, I'd like to tell you that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you, and he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. Our poem today, based on the verses we just looked at, is called A Blessing Upon Israel. Jacob arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, went along also, and his eleven sons, all these precious lives, over the ford of the Jabbok they did go. He took them over the brook they were sent, and he sent over what he had before the night was spent. Then Jacob was left alone after he sent them away, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When he saw that he did not prevail against him to this point, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint, and he wrestled with him in his mighty grip. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks, you see. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what's your name? He said, Jacob, it's always been the same. And he said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Struggling with God and with men, you were found stronger. You have prevailed. Yes, you did excel. Then Jacob asked, saying, yes, he did proclaim, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there that day. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I've seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. I am alive to tell of my struggle with God here in this place. Just as he crossed over Penuel, resuming his trip, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, the nerve cell, but to God they do thank because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the muscle that shrank during this amazing trip.
And the struggle of Jacob is our struggle as well. It is one against God until it becomes with him instead. This is the meaning of the name Israel. We struggle with God for or against him until we are dead. But through the marvel of Christ, the struggle does end as God grants us his spirit when we believe. The enmity is ceased when on Christ we depend and into our lives, Jesus, we receive. Thank you, O God, for our wonderful Lord and thank you, O God, for your precious word. Give us wisdom to pursue you alone for all of our days and fill us with your glory as we sing you praise. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that you allowed me to preach on today's passage. I'm thankful for the helicopters that fly by as well, Lord. People enjoying the life and the creation that you've blessed us with. But I, I cannot get beyond your word and about the glory which is revealed in your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus. And I hope that each person here or anybody that watches this sermon on YouTube will have in them a hunger and a desire to pursue this God-man who stepped out of eternity and gave up his life on the cross of Calvary for people such as us. Lord, I, I, I can't get beyond it. I, I have no other words to say today other than glory to you in the highest. Praises belong to you, majesty, honor, wonderment, all of it because of you and what you've done through Jesus our Lord. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen.